0: After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there?
1: questions.
0: If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton. And with me, I have a very special guest. From Lyft, the liaison of independent filmmakers in Toronto, I've got Chris Kennedy with me. Hey, man, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming. I mean, you guys have been on our radar for a little bit. So when uh, one of your people contacted us to be like, do you want to go through our archives and talk to our executive director, Chris, about what we've got going? on, I was like, yes, yes, please. Come on, give me all of your treasures. So I'm super excited to have you on the show. Chris, can you just talk a little bit first about what your role is and uh, what your journey was to joining and heading Lyft? Well,
1: I'm the uh, executive director here at Lyft, so I'm basically in charge of all the grants, making sure everything runs on time. A little bit about Lyft to give people context is we've been around for about 40 years. We're what I like to call a, a non-profit production access center. So uh, back in the day, we started as was commonly referred to as a film co-op, you know, where people kind of rally together uh, and bring equipment together and started to kind of work together to make films we've you know in the last 40 years we've kind of away from that as uh, toronto itself has become more city and more busy as a city and so there's not as much uh, kind of volunteering on everyone's uh, sets and stuff like that now as a production access center we're here to give people equipment for very reasonable prices uh we have uh, workshops to teach people how to make films we have resources for all kinds of different types of filmmaking and most recently we've been doing mentorship projects with uh, newcomer filmmakers filmmakers who were artists or filmmakers elsewhere but um we are helping them kind of connect with uh groups here and um we're a membership organization and members uh to uh to rent equipment to, to make f- films uh, with our resources so um as the executive director I'm, I'm kind of responsible for making sure that the doors stay open and uh, supporting the staff. We have about a staff of six in all the support that they give to creating workshops, uh, running all the workshops that we do. We do about 180 workshops a year. The technical staff, keeping all the equipment that we have uh, available in the best shape possible, working with it, liaisoning with our members and making sure that they're happy and and uh, feel that we're on the right track for them. Now, in terms of my personal journey, um, back when I was in an undergrad of film school, I wasn't in Toronto, but I heard about um, Lyft through their uh, the film print journal that they were publishing. I, I can't remember if it was like a bi-monthly journal, uh, but it came out fa- fairly regularly. And I would sit in the film lounge and um, read through the uh, publications. And then so when I moved to Toronto, in, uh, let's say about 20 years ago, I visited Lyft as one of the first things and uh, became a member uh early on. And, and Lyft helped me make films myself. So I I made my first film out of university in a festival called the $100 Film Festival, where uh, the challenge was to make a film for less than $100. They would give you the resources and um, and make a film that way. And uh, so I did that. And then I got a few grants to make films um, to list resources to do, do that for, over the course of a few years. And then 2013, they were searching around for a new executive director. And so I put my name forward. And <laughs> I've been here ever since. So,
0: And I'm sure they're very glad to have you because the lights are still on, whether things have been uh, have been up or down. And you guys have some really exciting opportunities coming up for filmmakers, as you said, newcomer filmmakers, people who are making their first film in general, young filmmakers, just people who want to learn the craft um, mm-hmm. and who may not have necessarily access to larger resource scales. Uh, what kind of services do you offer people and how do they access them?
1: Our workshops are available for anyone. You don't have to be a member. Uh, the general public can uh, um, look at our workshop list. It's at our website, lift Ca. We do about 180 workshops a year, so there's three seasons of about 60 workshops, and they kind of run the gamut. It's basically from script to screen, uh, script writing or storyboarding or production financing or learning camera work in general or learning a specific camera, editing all the way through to uh, to distributing. And then we also have workshops for people who are kind of in, interested in more artisanal filmmaking. We continue to support analog film. It's been actually really interesting because in the past five years, we've seen a five-fold increase in people interested in analog filmmaking. So we have all the digital technologies one would need. But we found that there's a lot of younger filmmakers who are really interested in uh, and having something to watch while they're playing their vinyl records. They're uh, making a lot of analog films, uh, shooting them documentaries or narrative or experimental. Like It doesn't really matter. Uh, From our perspective, we're there to support whoever uh, wants to make work in whatever way they want to.
0: And with that, have you found people approach storytelling or creation in different ways when they're using those two different mediums?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think there's different ways that people think when they think uh, either analog or digital. And, And in terms of Lifts preference, no, there's no preference. Like We're there for people who uh, want to work either way. And um, I think every artist or filmmaker has their own kind of perspective on how to make a film, and, and the tools are part of that. And so um, definitely when you're shooting on film, you have a lot less of it. And so you have to make a lot more planning decisions that, uh, at the beginning and uh, shoot at a lower ratio of, of takes to uh, final when you're shooting digital you have to create your own constraints because you're you know in many ways you're not constrained you can shoot as much as you want but then if you do that you have to encounter it in the editing room.
0: We've talked a little bit about the importance of community, especially in a place like Canada, where we're getting so drowned out by American media. Um, I mean, the UK and Australia and other English speaking countries tend to have it slightly easier because they're not next door to a monster that's so culturally similar to what we do. Um, How are you guys cultivating community and keeping people, you know, keeping everyone's hopes up so they don't just have to go work for Netflix or whatever big production is coming through?
1: Lyft is really kind of interesting in that way, because, you know, you come to Lyft and someone's always working on something, right? And someone's coming by, renting cameras, or someone's using our facilities because we have, right now, for example, I'm in the sound editing room. We have facilities for people to make different parts of the project. And so, you know, on a given day, at least two or three different people using the facilities, and then there's other people kind of coming in and renting, and then, you know, that kind of cross-pollination of of energy is, is one of the things that we're about. Sometimes making films can be a very lonely process. And so the idea that there's a bunch of us doing that is, is really kind of important to us. I mean, we have over 500 members and about half of them are what we call production members and people who are actively making something in some ways. We, we have a thousand projects a year that come through our, our doors. So for us, the alternatives to the elephant next door is basically all the little uh, projects that we're able to make. Happen on the day-to-day level,
0: and you've had some people come through your doors who have uh, done very well for themselves on the international scene, putting Canada on the map in terms of cinema. Who are some people you guys can boast as your your members or former members?
1: I think you name most of the canadian filmmakers uh, and, and that they've touched lyft in some ways they've been part of it in some ways i mean bruce mcdonald even used to sleep on the couch here at Lyft for um among the many different people like patricia rozima was uh, a member of lyft adam agoen we also had um, Clement Virgo was on the board for a while. Uh, Jeremy Pideswa was uh, a member for a while before he moved south. Rubanada is a, is one who was a young filmmaker when I started participating in Lyft. Um, and she's gone on to make uh, at least three features. The New Blood is making films like Sofia Bogdanovich is a, is a member here. And she's often kind of in the dark room or, or in one part of our facilities making films. So, you know, I, I really think there's this really kind of fun historical look at this site where there's been a lot of different activity over the years and people have gone on to do other things and then there's still people who are kind of very much a participant of left over the years like for example phil hoffman who's been a member for uh forever he shows up you know at least once a month to either bring his students by or to make it work on a new project or whatever so it's 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 there's a huge continuity of, of experience here, which is also a lot of fun.
0: And I think when you watch any groups of people who are particularly successful, they come up in packs. We see it all the time happening in the States with like groups of comedians that we're all part of, like troops together that are now yeah. up and are all some of the biggest comedians in the world now. You see a lot of that with filmmakers in Canada. So I think about people like Bruce McDonald, uh, Don McKellar coming up, then they bring Callum Keith Rennie, they bring Molly Parker. And all of a sudden, you've got this like group of enfant terribles that are making incredible new, innovative stuff. We see a little bit of that. Canada, of course, has Picnic Face, stuff like that, where they were all making films. And now Mark Little and Scott Vrooman and people like that are really affecting global change. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's interesting to see how those networks work. And I think a lot of people, because filmmaking can be a very lonely process, forget the importance of having those networks and coming up together and calling on each other. And I
1: think that's really one of the exciting things about Lyft historically, is there's always been pockets of, uh, of- Groups that uh, you know have worked together in different ways, and each cycle there's kind of a new group of people making new things, and that's that's a lot of fun as well.
0: Well, let's get into some of the things that Lyft has made. You picked a few movies, and all of the ones that you picked were on the experimental side, uh, some of them more accessible than others in terms of a mainstream point of view. Um, yeah. Why did you pick uh, so many experimental films, and what do you think the value of experimental is in the grander scheme of filmmaking? We're
1: about supporting independence, and the ultimate independent filmmaker is someone who works alone, right? And, uh, and when you work alone the resources are much smaller than if you have a crew. And so I think the fact that we support a lot of uh, independently-minded people who like to work alone allows for people who are experimental filmmakers to kind of t- to flourish. And, um, and so if they're, you know, experimentally-minded, uh, the fact that we have the resources for them is, is really uh, great. And one of the nice things about Canadian film in general is it's always been kind of this ultimate self-reflective, medium. You know, you look at Adam McGowan's work for for years, it was much about image making as it was about the, the storyline, right? All the cameras are aimed in at each other. And, you know, Cronenberg's like that as well. Bruce McDonald, Elvis's breaking the, the uh, fourth wall so canadian film has always been about kind of being introspective about it's self-reflexive about what film is and so the experimental gang are the guys and gals who uh, really focus on that to the kind of minute degree so they're they're really looking at like what makes a film how do we do it why do we change it how do we change it how do we invite more players into it and so that kind of thoughtful kind of uh self-reflexivity i think is just really par for the course of of the type of films that, uh, you know, we make on the Bigger and on the smaller scale here.
0: Part of this too is, of course, finding new ways to tell stories and a lot yeah. of personal stories. And the first movie I'd like to talk about is *Zyklon Portrait* from 1999. Mm-hmm. Alida right. Scholte. Is that how you pronounce her name?
1: That's
0: right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Alida yeah. I mean, this film really knocked me back and really disturbed me and upset me. And then I found out it was part of a trilogy and was like, well, yeah. now I have to seek out the whole thing. Uh, yeah. So part one is *Zyklon Portrait*. Part two is *The Walnut Tree*, and part three is *Silent Song*. And all of them are 16 mm uh, experimental documentary. They're about 13, 14 minutes long each, so they're right. they're bite-sized, but really they're so moving that it would be challenging to sit through more than that. Uh, how did you come across this work, and and what was the role of Lyft in it?
1: Alita was a Lyft member back in the day, and these were her first films, basically, that she made with, our, with Lyft's resources. This was Around the turn of the century, ninety-nine, 2000, maybe a little later, she had this material, she had this history with her grandparents, of course, that she wanted to explore. And so she developed these three projects to explore them. And And so she did a lot of the work at Lyft, a lot of the photograph of the film material, all the historical material was done at Lyft using our older machines she worked in with the um, director at that time of Roberto Arganello who was really good at uh, using the older machines um, and and so she created uh, these really lush moving images out of these historical this historical material that she found she made these films and um, kind of one of those moments where we all are reflecting on our histories, and uh, she made she made this film so so beautifully. She's gone on. Uh, she made a, a documentary about the number zero. She made that a few years ago, and then I think she's gone on to do her MFA and do more visual arts kind of work. But definitely, this this trilogy that she made was really one of those kind of knock them out of the park moments where you, you just go in and you like these films are so beautifully constructed, so thoughtfully made, and so articulate in just those 13 minutes each, you know, um, that uh, they've stuck with me for a long period of time. And, you know, it's one of those things where they, they are in a documentary form and they're looking at history in a way and, teaching us about how the personal can can resonate in many different ways
0: just so our audiences are aware the uh the film follows her family her grandparents and her mother is narrating the story uh her grandparents were uh, unfortunately lost in the Holocaust and uh, the nar- overall narration alternates between a very clinical uh, like sciency sort of voice explaining what zyklon B was and how it affected people and how it was invented and then having the actual story of her mother just having these memories of when she was a child in the in the first first iteration. And then, of course, as the war and the history progresses, the films progress as well. And you hear the whole story over all three films. And it's it's pretty affecting. And there's almost a Terrence Malickial style to it, where it's all this beautiful, lush imagery with a very analytical brain directly behind it. It's fascinating. Indeed, that's a great
1: description for it.
0: Why do you think this sort of perspective of people looking back in their, their life generationally, why do you think this is so powerful?
1: You know, in many different ways, uh, uh, you know, that we're a nation that's partly made up of immigrants and partly made up of people we took the land from. Mm-hmm. And so there's this constant dis- discussion about where is home and what does home mean and what does this place mean to us. And I think that's, you know, consistent for even up to now, right? You know, Elida's family. Left uh, where they were from because of the Holocaust. And we are to this day absorbing and uh, welcoming people who are making decisions about leaving home. And so I think for many, many of us, uh, uh, that kind of that nation of story storytellers mixes with a nation of immigrants. And we kind of the first stories we know are our family stories. And, and so, and sometimes sometimes the first stories we don't know are our family stories, and then we uncover them and find out, um, some really remarkable, uh, shocking, tragic, uh, beautiful things for that process. And I think, uh, Canada is a country who, who does that. We're like a younger country, and I kind of think of us as like the second kid. I'm, I'm the second kid in the family. My, my sister knows most of the family histories, but I don't know them. But I keep discovering new things, and some things I'm proud of, and some things I'm not so proud of. And so I think, uh, the, the way we as storytellers talk about stories is, 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 I think, a similar way. We're constantly discovering these histories and trying to share them to relate to each other's experiences as well.
0: I think something that's always fascinated me about the creation of art from a personal story. Your personal experience. And the conversation I love to have about it is when is the right time that you are able to process that feeling enough that a piece of art should be made? Mm -hmm. I think we've all experienced something, be it a piece of music or a play or a graphic novel or or something that someone created out of a place of grief or a place of joy or or something, an extreme, extreme emotion where you experience it yourself and you're like, oh, this is personal. And I almost feel voyeuristic experiencing this thing. And this feels like it's clearly personal but you're far enough removed from it that you can intellectually analyze it almost in a Brechtian sort of way.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that was uh, one of the really beautiful things about Oliva's process was she that active removal, she's distanced from the history. And so, she, you know, that she adds that to the uh, the film. So we're also kind of a bit removed from the context and, and don't feel we can we can empathize rather than feel voyeuristic uh, to the to the story.
0: But when you have that, this is why I'm so interested in the, the actual narration discussing what Zyklon B was and uh, and how it affected the human body and just how horrific that is. And then I think about the film, 32 short films about Glenn Gould, where mm-hmm. they're covering his addiction and they're just explaining what all the different drugs do and how they interact with each other. And, and you as the audience are left to interpret, oh, OK, this is what he's going through. He already is a little off kilter. So all these drugs floating through his system are doing something else. Um, right. And then you hear about the Zyklon B and you're like, OK, c- hearing the Technical aspects of this, and then contrasting that with actual human beings who you're seeing in a day at the beach and you're hearing stories about what they were like. Putting those two things together, do you think there's a cogn- cognitive dissonance there, or do you think it helps us empathize more?
1: I think it helps us empathize m- more because I really think uh, one of the tragedies of the Holocaust, and this is something that we also have to kind of measure uh, in the future, is uh, the tragedy of the Holocaust is how easy it was for the german people to approach things clinically to to how easy it was for people to distance themselves from what the government was doing to distance themselves from what these uh Uh, weapons we're doing like as she points out cyclone b is a pesticide it has a use value that is helpful to humans but if you step back it can also be uh and and remove that kind of one would hope inherent human responsibility to not use such a thing against another human but if you remove that kind of ability like if you start clinically deciding well you know what it's a pesticide and uh, we can use it on humans as well then you know that's where tragedy happens and so um I think it's really important for us to as we look at the ways that um we can c- compartmentalize stuff and 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 allow tragedies to happen sometimes in our name without by di- by the distancing process. So I think in many ways, Elita is pointing to the way to w- way that we can emphasize with both the victims uh, but also in kind of this the science and the technology that we use in order to to create victims.
0: Now, how can people find this piece? This-
1: it circulates it's about 20 years old so i mean it's not readily available anymore um a lot of films that come through lyft are distributed by uh places like canadian filmmakers distribution center or v tape which are kind of like lyft but they're distributors like they're they're focused on the independent film that might not go into the uh um the larger world um a good place to check out films like that is online is a place called Vukuvu which is a online kind of the Huffington Post of independent distributors you basically one stop shop for aggregation for independent film and Uh, Unfortunately, I just checked and her film's not on there, but uh, it's a place where you can find other stuff as well.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Well, let's talk about uh, the second film uh, that you chose. This one, I'd seen this one before. Um, I really love it. I'm a big Callum Keith Rennie fan. So when I found out that this existed, I was like, I need to find this. Uh, It's called Frank's Cock. And I'm sure when it was winning awards, there was a lot of red faces as people read that one out. Can you talk a little bit about this film?
1: Mike, when he received the Best Short Film Award at the Toronto Film Festival, he said, that Frank's cock never looked so big. Um, <laughs> so yes, it's it's one of those like it is one of those things where it plays with that rudeness, but it's uh, and and that's one of the joys of the film. Frank's cock is by Mike Hubum. Hobo. Mike Hubum's uh, been a part of the scene for since since. Lyft was founded. Uh, he was part of the funnel, which was preceded Lyft, and that has been a member of Lift uh, on and off over the last forty years. And uh, he is a um, experimental filmmaker with a very prolific back catalog. and And Frank's Cock was probably his um, uh, his crossover hit. Basically, he's uh, he in the late eighties, uh, early nineties uh, was uh, diagnosed with HIV, and was in this, this kind of the center of the. AIDS crisis and Frank's cock is one of the ways that he uh one of the many different films he made to address the issue and um and in this one it's uh Calabrani giving a monologue about uh, Frank his lover who had just been diagnosed with AIDS and uh the film is basically Calum's uh facing the camera and giving this monologue uh and then there's two other there's three other screens uh, in the in the screen it's a picture within a picture there's four pictures calum and then various imagery including gay pornography and pictures of the human body and, and uh so uh and pop culture kind of images and, and so you're kind of bombarded with these images to look at uh while you focus on calum's um Uh, really wonderful monologue.
0: It's a beautiful performance from him and really, I believe this is one of his first appearances on camera. It's 1993, so he had as of yet to become like the Hollywood villain that he would later be or, you know, the Canadian film staple. Just to watch it alone for that monologue performance is entirely worth your time. I think what's interesting to me about this film is that we don't think about the HIV crisis as a crisis anymore. Like, it's still around, it still exists, you have to be careful, you have to get tested, but it's no longer the death sentence that that it once was right. so these reminders of seeing films like this or thinking about angels in America which came out in 1991 or even uh, rent which doesn't necessarily have the resonance they're these little time capsule reminders of yeah this is what it used to be like and it used to be oh you were diagnosed okay that's it your life is over and mm-hmm. uh, and this has a fascinating way of telling that story going about it and seeing it from the point of view of someone who is interacting with someone who has it as opposed to yeah. someone who already, someone who is who was just diagnosed which gives you that level of removal it's it's really interesting
1: and it's also really interesting on this uh as a historical moment this was like made in 1993 and as you pointed out for uh, this is one of calen's first performances but you know there's this moment when everyone is working with each other right and so just the just the fact that mike is is an experimental filmmaker and uh, didn't mean that it was verboten for Kalen to work with him and he, Kalen would explore with that as well as he, when he was doing experimental theater and, and regular theater. And then, you know, the stuff that we now know him and love him. And, and at the same time, also the AIDS epidemic was very much, is part of the community. Like everyone was, uh, knew someone with AIDS at that moment. And, uh, there's a, it was a difficult time, you know, this was even, this was even before, you know, uh, uh, gay rights uh, really became a norm, right? And so, so looking back at this p- period, this is a this is an interesting film, partly because it takes something so, at the time, very controversial and makes it normal to, for lack of a better word, it makes it accessible. For, you know, the larger viewing audience. And so, anyone sitting down at that year's TIFF and sitting in the uh, shorts program would watch the normal kind of collection of shorts, and then they would see this one. And it would blend in in many ways, but it would challenge you at the same time. And so I think it's a really kind of interestingly subversive film that allowed a lot of people to kind of get a better sense of um, of what was actually going on in parts of the community that people were not paying attention to as as much as they should have been.
0: Now, stop me if I'm wrong, but in my research, it looked like Mike Holblum was was straight, and he had contracted HIV from a blood transfusion. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I've I've never really looked into the. Uh, Uh, the history of his relationship to the age crisis, but um, be that it may, he's, he's been part of, in many ways, he has been part of the queer community in and out partly because of his, um, his status, but also partly because of his own desire to, in a larger sense queer the image like again question the normative kind of way that we look at the world and uh, look at images and create films and so his films have always kind of been in and out of in and out of different categories and so i think he is a, a person is uh, is a person who also likes to move in between categories so regardless it was basically uh, his status brought him uh, in contact with a lot of different people that uh, maybe if he uh, had not contracted uh, uh, HIV, uh, he'd Maybe maybe that would be different, and so so maybe his his, his position also allowed him to be a bit of an uh, intercessor between uh, different communities.
0: Yeah, I think his journey into making this film was just so interesting to me, especially that when he was diagnosed, he then joined uh, People with AIDS, where he made a number of friends, and a few of these stories that Callum tells are from these people. And he originally started out to make a quote unquote normal film, uh, yeah. I use his words, about these stories where it was about a patient patients that were full of love and about these these loving relationships and who, what people were actually going through and a humanization. And then I looked up when Philadelphia was, because that was like the big breakthrough thing, because how do you not love Tom Hanks, you know, as you right, right. empathize with him. That was 1993 as well. Yeah, so for yeah. these two films to hit at the same time is like what a one-two punch for that, uh, for that kind of awareness.
1: I wouldn't be surprised if someone played Frank's cock in front of Philadelphia at some Film festival at one point in time.
0: Yeah, well, especially Philadelphia is so under fire now for um, sanitizing the idea of what a gay relationship looks like. He and Antonio Banderas don't touch each other for the entire film. Whereas not only are you seeing what this relationship is like between um, the unnamed narrator and Frank, uh, you are really witnessing perhaps some... Elements of society that you may not be aware of, or comfortable with, or knew existed, or would have challenges empathizing with. It's like, well, if you're there, is like that whole feeling of, well, if you're going to do that, then this is it's 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 on you that this happened. So mm-hmm. to see like a blame placing that's just ridiculous. So when you see this broken down, an actual person telling the story about what it's going to mean to him, but yeah. not in an overly emotional way, like the way no. he's so almost detached. Is even sadder because he just knows this is what happens.
1: Yeah. 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 No, it is. It's, it's, uh, it allows you in partly through the humor as well. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, hindsight in terms of like how these films portrayed things back in the day, it's always kind of difficult because obviously we've, um, we've seen so many changes in how, uh, people are portrayed, um, since then. Uh, that, uh, I saw Frank's cock probably. About three or four years after it, it came out, and yeah, it, it definitely challenged me and made me think in different ways. And I think that's uh, really what uh, one of the wonderful things about film can do.
0: This was his first film to use this effect, but it wasn't his last. He also used it in nineteen ninety seven for a short called Positive. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, what was it about? Do you know what it was about that effect that he really found, I suppose, effective?
1: Well, he um, this was he he's often and. To this day, he works a lot with found imagery, with stolen imagery, and uh, you know he looks at the media landscape and he takes what he can. And uh, you know, back in that moment, I think, I mean, as of now, he's he's interested in media saturation. And at that point, four screens was media saturation. I mean, at 1993, might. Be just around the time that uh, cp24 started to do all those five or six seven or eight screens uh, in a screen on your tv where you had to read the image and watch something in the corner and listen to something and do you know that kind of the multiple imagery that we're you know we're now so used to by just going into a bar uh, was something that i think mike was interested in well as well and you know he did it in a more economical way because you know that's the limited resources he probably had a couple thousand dollars worth of uh, in order to make this film and so you know he made it in a a kind of simple efficient way that kind of referenced the image explosion that we live in um, but uh, plays with the idea of you know how there are multiple multiple takes on things. There's multiple I- images. There's mul- multiple ways to see the world.
0: This is another one that's relatively easy for people to find. Uh, how do people do that, Chris?
1: Well, obviously, you, uh, Frank's cock is all over the internet. Uh, <laughs> all you have to do is search. Uh, no, but it's. Uh, I mean, it is one of those things where if you if you do a Google search for uh, Frank's cock, Mike Holum, uh, it's up there, so you can take a peek. I
0: think that's a great place to end our first episode. Thank you so much. We're going to be back next week with even. More movies and uh, more Chris Kennedy because he knows what he's talking about and he's great. Thank you so much for joining me, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next
1: week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.